1: Today on CityCast Pittsburgh, we got a much more detailed look at what happened to Jim Rogers in 2021. City Council is proposing a tiny home encampment as one possible solution to homelessness. And the free spay and neuter program is being paused, allegedly because of suburbanites. Plus, there's a new EMT training program for city residents. It's February 9th, the Friday News Roundup. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. I'm with CityCast Mary Lee Williams
0: and Sophia Lowe. Good morning, y'all. Hi, Megan. Good morning, Megan. Really quick, I just want to say thank you for the dumpling, Rex. Uh That was oh. in our <laughs> yeah, February guide episode. I'm heading to Squirrel Hill tonight for a Lunar New Year dinner with some friends. Oh, yay. So hoping to try some of the dumplings you talked about.
1: I cannot recommend them enough. I know you know where to go. Uh, but if anybody needs help, needs a recommendation, definitely go back and listen to our guide to February in Pittsburgh or yes. check out the recommendations on the
0: website. Uh, we made a lot of them. I'm so glad you're going to get to try that. Me too. And since the weather's a little bit sunnier, fingers crossed it stays that way. Now's a good time to maybe get outside. Definitely.
2: For sure. Well, aside from what you guys are planning to do coming up, let's talk about the news. So, what is on Pittsburghers' minds this week?
1: Yeah, we're starting today's show with kind of a heavy topic. Um, we have a little more clarity now and to what happened
0: to Jim Rogers back in 2021. And just to catch folks up, Jim Rogers was a 54-year-old black man. There's not a ton of info about his life, at least that we could find. But I do know that he died after an interaction with the police.
1: Yeah, it was kind of gruesome. Yeah. Um- It was in Bloomfield, your neighborhood, Sophia. Um, So October 2021, um, Pittsburgh police responded to a call about a possible bicycle theft. Officers said that Rogers matched the description of what was called in. And then during the arrest process, a Pittsburgh officer, Keith Edmonds, shocked Rogers multiple times with a taser.
2: And Rogers died in the hospital the next day. Edmonds and some of the officers were eventually fired and a few others got suspended. Several of those officers have since returned to work and the city settled a lawsuit with the family for $8 million.
0: And now there's body cam footage or I guess a mix of body cam and cell phone videos. It comes out to 52 minutes and it shows how this whole interaction went down. I know there's some footage of uh, Rogers asking for medical help.
2: And there are outlets who have published it and others who've like described it in detail, but we're not going to be doing either of those things.
0: Uh, But I'm wondering how we got the tape and why it took this long, because it's been over two years since Rogers died. I mean, the short answer is
1: that Pennsylvania protects its first responders. Um, I would say all government institutions, really. Um, And they can make it really hard for people to access clarifying source material. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, In this case, though, the law firm representing the Rogers family got a court order allowing the attorneys to release the footage.
2: Yeah, like I can definitely believe that. There's laws protecting government institutions. But I am curious, what's the long answer to this? Like, what does the law say?
1: Yeah. So all states have right-to-know laws um, where you can access information if you're not familiar. I feel like everyone on this call is, but I don't want to take that for granted. Um, on the federal level, they're often called FOIAs. Um, but here in mm-hmm. Pennsylvania, there's this carve-out uh, for law enforcement footage under something called Act 22. Um, we'll link to it. Um, the benchmarks are really kind of hard to meet if you want to get like something like a
0: body cam footage. Yeah. So give us an example, Megan, of those benchmarks.
1: Yeah, um, if you want like a a more easily digestible version of this, uh, I recommend WESA's uh, story on this. Kylie Kosinski did a really good piece. But like, so for example, you have to ask for the footage within 60 days of when it was recorded. Um, If it's at someone's home, uh, you need to list everyone who appears in the tape, which may be kind of hard to do. Um, There's stuff like that. And the things that they can legally deny you for are kind of broad by my reading. Like if it shows evidence related to a crime, they can say no to you, which, like, why would I be huh. requesting this footage if it weren't evidence of something? Like, that's such a weird carve out to me. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, isn't that kind of why you want it? Exactly. Mm hmm. So I know, Megan,
0: you read the statute, um, but. If you don't want to dig through all the legalese, (laughs) uh, Kylie did a great job explaining why it's so rare that this footage was released and how Mm -hmm. so much of it was released at all. Uh, I highly recommend reading through it. That is a much more, I think, straightforward breakdown than trying to dig through a government statute
2: yeah and i got curious whether we and when i say we i'm talking about the state of pennsylvania uh, are actually worse about this than other states and i found an article from WHYY in 2021 that said quote while pennsylvania's restrictions on police footage aren't necessarily worse than other states advocates say access could and should be improved i mean i i hear
1: what they're saying and there's the caveat there for police footage but i mean as a journalist who has lived and worked as a reporter in multiple states, I definitely think Pennsylvania is worse, personally. There's this like this pervasive attitude that our institutions are doing us some kind of favor when they fulfill requests. Like their reflexive position is to say no or to fight us, where in other states, it's not like that. If it's supposed to be public information, they just give it to you. Or in a lot of cases, they just create systems so that you don't have to ask. You can just go
0: find it on your own. Like that, to me, is what transparency is supposed to mean,
2: Yes, snaps, Megan, snaps.
0: Fair enough. (laughs) Uh, And I know that the Rogers family attorney has said that a big motivation for getting this tape out is to create a change in policy. And this lawyer, he wants people to request uh, things that have been captured on a body cam in the future. But I mean, given how long this is going to take and given all of those like very specific requirements you have to meet, I wonder if people will end up doing this. Um, But I think the hope for me is that, you know, this kind of situation doesn't happen again, where the police aren't using force, tasering people, like no interaction with the police should end in a death.
1: Yeah. I mean, Kylie's story goes more deeply into this and other outlets have too. But the city did institute some change in policy immediately after this incident um, under Bill Peduto, former Mayor Bill Peduto's administration, and has continued it or say they've
0: continued it under Ganey. So I hope you're right, Sophia. I hope that it won't happen again. So on to the next news item, Mary Lee, what have you been watching this week?
2: Yes, yes, a bit of a shift. So there is a proposal that is scheduled to be getting a public hearing on February 20th, and it has to do with like tiny homes for those who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, It was in front of the City Planning Commission.
1: Yeah, there has been some good local reporting on this for a while now, Rich Lord for Public Source, and once again, Kylie Kasinski for WESA. Uh, but the proposal itself is not new. It was brought up last year as one of several potential ideas to try and address our homeless population.
0: Yeah, I remember reading about some other options uh, that included basically like redoing an office building into a dorm style apartment building um, and then also another long term shelter building.
2: Yeah, and so this idea of the tiny village seems to be the one that's, like, making moves right now. Uh, Counselors Deb Gross and Anthony Coghill showed off some prototypes in January. They were suggesting 10 units that are roughly, like, 9 by 8 by 10 and that cost about $2,000 a pop, and... They look like these like little sheds. Uh, my
1: favorite part of the I mean, first of all, they look darling. But it's my cute. My favorite part is that Coghill built it himself, like the first prototype built it himself. Yeah, I didn't
2: want to like <laughs> get into that here, but it was really cute. Also, they have like little mailboxes on them. I just thought that was like really cute.
1: I, I'm skeptical that they're all going to look like that. Like I know we're many, many steps removed from them actually coming to fruition. But or still, if it like, even
2: happens. Yeah. yeah. It
1: had sighting like what? Oh, wow.
2: They looked like like little cute set sheds you might like put in your yard or something for like uh, if you wanted like a cute little escape like they're they're really adorable. But getting back into it, the newsy meat of the story, uh, public source reports it got a mixed response from the city commissioners. Um, Some questioned if this is like a long lasting solution to address homelessness and others were like. Enthusiastic to get the project going, so it's kind of mixed right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, the question about like how long this is for, I think, is really worthy, right? Like, Public Source has been doing some pretty great reporting on how our leaders and lawmakers have been approaching this question of homelessness for a while now. Mm-hmm. Like, they've they've really been covering the heck out of it, especially encampments. Um, but one thing that they've brought up. Over and over is this idea of marginalization, like where people are allowed to be homeless. Um, And, you know, one thing I've seen in some of their stories is like you don't want to put a large number of traumatized individuals in the same space unless you have a tremendous amount of support. Mm -hmm. And it's been mostly it seems like advocates doing a lot of that work and less of the city. Maybe I've got that wrong, but it just like seems like this is something that needs more discussion to come to fruition.
2: Yeah. And I I, I totally agree with that. I do think generally there's going to be a lot of discussion.
1: Yeah. I mean, 10 units is small, um, but some communities like this have gotten really, really big. Like there's a Texas Tribune article that actually a friend of the pod sent us a few weeks ago um, that did a really good job exploring what this can look like on a much bigger scale. Um, I'll make sure we link to
0: it in case you want to dig in more. Um, and thinking about, like, other resources people might need, I'd be curious about how they're planning to handle hygiene. Like, is there going to be a space where you can do laundry, take a shower? Uh, is there any plan for how that's going to work?
1: Yeah. Or, like, you know, be able to access any other services, like, you know, access to food, things like that. Um, at least nationally, other cities seem to be handling it in different ways. Um, and I guess Pittsburgh is so early in this process. Um, The other thing, too, I bet zoning is going to come in on this. Like, we always have some weird conversation around zoning for everything. Zoning. It
2: is back. We can never escape zoning, everyone. Uh, Exactly. So in November, a bill was introduced in city council that would create a zoning use that's called a temporary managed community. And this would basically allow for the creation of these tiny home villages under certain conditions, like prohibiting junk. Uh, There's like a certain capacity. of junk? It's it's basically just trying to keep the space clean. I, I didn't dig too deep into I what know, that means. But like
1: by whose definition?
2: You know, we're still waiting to the, the jury's out on the, the zoning ordinance. But, you know, they, they have a way to kind of try to create something like this to carve out space for it.
0: So I'm guessing we'll see where things go in the coming weeks. As usual, we'll be keeping an eye out for more updates. Exactly.
1: Do you like to dance? Look at beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch? Well, mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th garden party. The theme this year is Make Believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins, and so will everyone else there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm, because this is a theme party. You want to come dress to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend, and rest assured, everyone. Every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org.
3: Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner.
0: One piece of Pittsburgh history and Black history that I think more people should know about is that emergency medical services started in the Hill District. Right, yeah. Um, Yeah, I'm pretty familiar with this because I have a friend who's a paramedic and has also been really interested in this history. Um, But... Before we had ambulance services, there wasn't like widespread help that would come to you. So if you got hurt, what would happen is you might actually end up calling the police or a funeral home. So not good options. Like, this isn't it like the optics of that. Like,
1: just I'm calling the funeral home because I'm hurt and I need help. It feels weird.
2: A lot of people died because people just like couldn't get the care that they need. And the people who did respond to a medical emergency like weren't as qualified as the paramedics that we have today. And of
0: course, thinking about the Hill District, that was and is a predominantly Black neighborhood. So that means that there's not necessarily a guaranteed positive relationship with the police if they're the ones responding to.
1: Or police just wouldn't respond to black neighborhoods in the same way that they did white neighborhoods at the time um, the period we're talking about is like the 1960s so in 1967 um, folks established the Freedom House Ambulance Service um, it serviced the Hill District uh, parts of Oakland and downtown they teamed up with an anesthesiologist named Peter Schaefer who developed this paramedic training program um, and we previously interviewed a guy named Kevin Hazard he wrote a book about the ambulance service here's what he Said about how the whole thing came together
3: Jim McCoy who's a uh, civil rights activist starts Freedom House with the idea of, of bringing training job training programs to people in a neighborhood he didn't he didn't want just any job he wanted something aspirational something that could lift people up to another level but he was having trouble finding one so Freedom House has all these people but doesn't yet have an aspirational idea Peter Saffer has this aspirational idea of no people they come together, and you know, in that moment, uh, the world's first paramedic training course is born. And because of Freedom House's mandate, its location, its philosophy, McCoy says, "Look, y- you can do anything you want, but the people that that we recruit for this have to be black, and they have to be from the Hill. On that, we won't negotiate." And Saffer says, mm-hmm. "Let's do it." And then there you have it. That's how. The world's first paramedics end up being, you know, two dozen black men from the Hill District.
1: And so in many respects, the folks that created Freedom House ended up being kind of the model for how ambulance service could work everywhere else in the nation. It's a really wonderful legacy. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, you know, now pivoting to the news part uh, at a Black History Month event, Mayor Ganey announced a pilot program called Freedom House EMT training. Um, so honoring this historic program, it's a full time paid training program for city residents.
1: Yeah, not too shabby. Sixteen dollars an hour. It's the whole thing is 12 weeks long. And then after you're guaranteed
0: a job as an EMT with the city, if you want it. I am so glad that there's a direct pipeline to getting a job after the training program. That's so important. I know it's not always like 100 percent guarantee. Yeah. I mean, lots of training programs, they can they can connect you. Right. But they don't necessarily have the pipeline. So it's cool that they connected the dots there. And then I saw a trip article say that once you're done with the training program and have a job as an EMT, that pay will go up to a little over $20 an hour.
2: Yeah. And I think having that pay is like so important. And when Ganey announced this, EMS chief Amara Gilcrest talked about how one of the goals of this program is to increase diversity of EMTs in the city and make sure that the training is paid to lower some of these barriers to entry.
1: Yeah, I saw several stories where she said, like, I wish that this had been around when I was a young person doing this. It would have made my life a little bit easier. Um, actually, too, in the stories for this, um, there were so many photos. It hit me that all the public safety bureaus in the city right now are led by people of color. So Gilchrist for EMS, wow. Daryl Jones is the fire chief, and then Larry Scarato for police, plus Ganey. I don't know. It was just a cool realization, you know? Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, no, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. And while I was reading about Freedom House's ambulances and paramedics, I also saw an article in the Pittsburgh Union Progress about how the current EMS chief was mentored by John Moon, who was previously a paramedic with Freedom House. So I thought that was another cool connection. And you can really see that legacy of um, the first paramedics in Pittsburgh, like still around today. Mm -hmm. The reporter for that one was uh, Helen Fallon. I thought that was a really good story. Mm -hmm. And then for anyone interested in applying to the training program, we'll have a link to the job description and application in our show notes. Um, So that'll give you the requirements for the role. Uh, It looks like you do need to be a resident of Pittsburgh. Uh, You've got until February 22nd to apply, and that application closes at 4 p.m. that day. (laughs) Business hours. Um,
1: And if you want to learn more about the history of EMS programs here in the city, you can listen to our full episode about the Freedom House Ambulance Service. There's also a new exhibit at the city county building about the ambulance service. So it includes things like pictures and medical equipment that was used at the time. Um, And then some of the photos were actually contributed by John Moon himself. Super cool.
2: Okay, so last up, uh, a kind of ending, pausing, maybe ending of sorts, the city's free spay and neuter program. It just got paused.
0: Until you told me about it, I didn't even know that we had a free spay and neuter program. I adopted my cat literally right after she got rescued and spayed. Like Her tummy was shaved, not fuzzy Mm -hmm. and soft. Um, She had kittens as a teen mom, like under a year old. I don't even know you could have kittens that young or like cats could have kids that young.
2: Yeah. the See, like this is exactly the situation where this type of program is useful uh, to control the population of dogs and cats, especially feral ones that live outside. I actually use this program myself for my two cats, and I am a huge advocate for it because spay and neuter services are expensive procedures. And I was like so thrilled to learn that the city offered this program for free.
1: So you had a good experience with it then?
2: Yeah, it was super easy. Uh, you did have to send in a physical form via post, like to apply. snail mail. Yeah, so that <laughs> like that was kind of annoying because I was like, why can't I just email this? Uh, but it was generally a breeze, and I I'm really frustrated because what happened is the city's pausing this program because apparently people who lived outside the city were using it.
1: Yeah, a Trib story uh, says that apparently people were lying on the forms and giving city addresses. Um, and then they were also promoting ways to do that on social media. Like, it just sucks. Oh, g-
2: yeah, that's so annoying.
0: Yeah, I would be really frustrated, too, if I had a pet that needed to be spayed or neutered. Because when I went looking at the details of it, I saw that people could have applied for up to five pets, which could save you thousands of dollars, a few thousand dollars. Like, these like services are expensive.
1: And I want our outlying communities, like our suburban communities, to have access to this stuff, but like not in a way that's gonna like cost the city their ability to do it at all, you know. Um, Anyway, the city's press release says that the program is going to be coming back, um, but it doesn't have a firm date for that yet, Uh, and they might be making some changes. The city's director of public safety said, quote, we are excited to build out a more sustainable and equitable program and are looking forward to rolling out a new and improved program to all city residents that also safeguards good stewardship of our taxpayer dollars, end quote.
0: Wow, that feels like a very pointed call out to all of the people outside of the city who are sneaking into the program. Um, Do we know what kind of impact this will have on like the feral cat population? Because I know that's a big deal around here. I haven't seen anything. I don't know if y'all have. I kind of feel like exact numbers
1: might be tough for something like that. True, true. Yeah. Um, But we did have an advocacy group called Conquer the Colony on the show um, a while back to talk about their work trapping and spaying and neutering cats. Um, They explained that they can have little kitties all year round. Once a cat is pregnant, they can get pregnant while they're still lactating. And then
0: in turn, the kittens can also start to get pregnant and start mating as early as four months. So that's just an example of how the population completely explodes. I repeat, my cat got pregnant before she was one. She was so itty-bitty when we got her that I thought she was a kitten herself. But I guess kittens can also get pregnant. Poor Pistachio. Yes, she had a fend for herself in the wild. Well, suburbs of Indiana until the shelter (laughs) found her. So anyway, yes, definitely spay and neuter
2: your animals. I I do have some news for people. If you've already applied and hearing this is making you anxious, you are not going to be left hanging completely. According to the city's press release, the Bureau of Animal Care and Control is supposed to contact people directly, uh, but it doesn't say whether you'll have an alternative. So I'm really hoping that those folks who have applied are still able to get their animals spayed and neutered for free.
1: Yeah, it would really stink to realize that like
0: I meant to send in the form, like maybe you had like a couple weeks you sat on it and then like, boom. Yeah. Yeah, well, if you need another option, uh, this isn't free, but is probably the next best thing if the city program's on hold. Spay Neuter Clinic has locations in the North Hills and Penn Hills. Uh, It's a lower cost, more affordable option. Um, Prices do vary a lot based on whether you're looking for a spay or a neuter, whether you have a cat or a dog, and then the size of your dog. Um, But at the very least, all options are under $200.
1: Interesting. Um, well, just so we're sending everyone into the weekend with a teeny bit of good news. Kennywood has announced their opening day for this season. Um, Yay. You, can, <laughs> you can get your tickets um,
0: and head over to the park starting Saturday, April 20th. 420.
2: Ooh. What
3: an
0: opening <laughs> date. Um, you won't right? see me there then, but Kennywood's absolutely on my list this summer because I want to ride the Steel Curtain. It was closed when I went there last year.
2: mm. I will be holding your bags for you when you are on the roller coasters I think I mentioned this in last week's fNR but I am far too fragile to be thrown around like that I shan't <laughs> I shan't go on a roller coaster I'm usually good for four or five
1: rides at least I was before I had a baby um, but then I'll be right there with you Mary Lee we can get potato patch fries and take selfies with the animatronics that sounds ideal <laughs> I will be
0: there for the fries as well. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope you'll have a good weekend, Jens. Thank you so much. Thanks, Megan. Thanks, you too. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. Reminder, you can find all of our shows, old and new, on our website. That's pittsburgh.citycast.fm. Our music is by Benji. Mary Lee Williams is our executive producer. Sophia Lowe produces the show. Francesca DeBecco writes our newsletter. And I'm your host, Megan Harris. We'll be back on Monday with more news from around the city. Have a great weekend, everyone.
3: Honeywood's open, but not open, not that way.